0: Let's read the scriptures together. If you have your Bible, I'm going to read from the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, far to the left. I'm going to be reading from the 41st chapter beginning at verse 33. If you're visiting this morning or been away, reading through the story of Joseph. He is in the house of Pharaoh. He has interpreted Pharaoh's dreams to him about years of famine and years of prosperity that is about to come. And at this point in the story chapter 41 verse 33 joseph turns from interpreter into advisor to pharaoh himself these are the words of joseph now therefore let pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of egypt let pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring, from his hand, and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh, called joseph's name Zaphnath Penea, and he gave him in marriage asenath the daughter of potipharah priest of on so joseph went out over the land of egypt joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of pharaoh king of egypt and joseph went out from the presence of pharaoh and went through all the land of egypt During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph. Had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says, you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of egypt moreover all the earth came to egypt to joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth this is god's word let's pray humble us i pray almighty god under your word as it speaks to us wisdom and life in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: If you have been uh, part of a church or Christian circles for even a few short weeks, you've probably run up against uh, the tension or the reality that, uh, on the one hand, the Bible speaks of a God who is sovereign. And when I use the word sovereign, by that I mean things like um, God has got authority over all the world, the universe that He has created. He's above all things. He's before all things. He has created all things. He has created things in heaven and the earth, both things invisible and things visible. God knows the past, the present, and the future. There's no limit to his knowledge or understanding. God can do all things. There is nothing that is too difficult for him. And God is in control of all things, and he rules over all things. And so that's part of what I mean when I use the word God is sovereign. You bump up against the reality that God is sovereign, but also the reality that uh, humankind, men and women, have free choice. It's probably been one of the things that has been uppermost in my thinking for the last number of years since I've been a Christian, since I became a Christian to this point. There's probably not a week that goes by where I don't wrestle with this tension. I don't wrestle with the twin truths taught in Scripture that God is both sovereign, and yet I am a free Uh, choosing responsible human being who will be held accountable for my decisions that kind of reality is worked out throughout the pages of scripture and it certainly worked out on this story that we're looking at now and in particular this chapter that we are wrestling with and I woke up this morning and you know the first thought that popped in my head was this is absolutely relevant to mothers because I think one of the, the, the ways that you will succeed as a mother is to begin by having an absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God as you work in your home and as you raise your, your children to love the Lord and to serve the Lord and pour into them truths about God. You've got to go with a confidence that God is sovereign, but understand that God expects you to act and to work and to serve and to teach and to raise and to contribute to the lives of your kids. And so we come to a text like this, and we see this, these twin realities borne out for us. As Pastor Barry mentioned, in, in, in the first 32 verses of this chapter, the, the point of reference is to the sovereignty of God. And in fact, we end at verse 32. And at verse 32 of chapter 41, uh, Moses, or Joseph says to Pharaoh, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that this thing is fixed by God and it will shortly come about. That is a statement about the sovereignty of God. The stuff that you dreamed, Pharaoh, the reality that there's seven years of plenty coming and seven years of famine coming, that is fixed by God. He has said it. It will happen. God's word is true. He has the power to make it come true. Well, the rest of the chapter then is uh, how we respond to the sovereignty of God, how we respond to the fixed reality of the things that God has determined by his word. And so one of the questions that I've been wrestling with through this text and I hope that you will begin to wrestle with it is simply this is how do we live in light of the sovereignty of God how does it shape the decisions that we make the choices that we choose the actions that we engage in Does the truth about the providence of God, which is an extension of the sovereignty of God, does the truth about the providence of God leave us twiddling our thumbs, so to speak, as the plans of God unfold before us and we can do nothing about it? In other words, do we embrace fatalism where stuff will just happen? There's no meaning. There's no purpose behind it. It will just happen because there's a sovereign God. Or do we um, embrace determinism? which simply says, there's nothing I can do to influence that. There's nothing I can do to change that. God has determined everything that will take place, So we come to a text like this, and I think it gives us some wisdom and some guidance, and it fuels our thinking on how we can deal with this tension that's in the Bible. These twin truths are in the Bible between the sovereign purposes and plans of God and the free choices and responsibilities of men and women. The first thing that we see in uh, verse 33 is the the need for wisdom and the request for wisdom before a sovereign God. No sooner has the words of interpretation flown off of Joseph's mouth than all of a sudden now he has some advice for Pharaoh. He has a plan that he presents to Pharaoh. Even though God has determined what's going to happen, Joseph says, okay, now in light of that, we need to act. And so he presents a plan before Pharaoh and he says, listen, Pharaoh, you need to look for a wise and discerning man. And then you need to take that individual and you need to set them above all of the land. And then you need to follow his famine preparation plan. It should be obvious that the plan of God or the sovereign plan of God is to send a famine. And that doesn't mean, though, that we sit idly by and wait for it to come. God had told Pharaoh what he was about to do. And now he told, tells Pharaoh through Joseph how he is to prepare for this sure and certain famine that is coming. I was thinking about this a little bit. is How did Joseph know to speak into Pharaoh's mind or life at that particular point? This is a significant risk for this young man. He has just been pulled out of a prison. And now he's before who is likely the most powerful man in the earth at that time, and he's advising him out of nowhere with no past history, uh, just of sheer courage, he reveals to Pharaoh what he thinks that he should do. It's remarkable boldness on Joseph's part. I can only speculate of how that happened, but I, I wonder if it sort of happened like this. As we know, all along, Joseph had been trusting in God for the last 13 years. He'd been in Prison, and he, the last number of years is his life, and he's thinking, "Well, what's going to happen here?" And he's he's cultivating a relationship to God. All of a sudden, there's a tap on his shoulder, and it says, "Joseph, Pharaoh wants to talk to you." I can't imagine what must have gone through his head at that moment, and probably over the next few hours and it probably would have taken that long for them to uh, get him ready to come into the presence of Pharaoh. They, They would have shaved his beard and his head. They would have probably bathed him. They would have cleaned him up. They would have had to measure him for clothes and robes and they would have had to get him presentable to go into Pharaoh's court. And I can imagine that during that time he was praying. That during that time, as all this was going on, he was just going out and saying, God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you've got for me. I don't know why Pharaoh has called me. But I know that it's by your plan and your providence that I'm going to be in his presence. Would you give me wisdom? Would you give me instruction? Would you give me insight? Would you prepare me for that moment when he asks me to do something or tells me why I'm there? It's a wonderful sense of his reliance on God, even though God is the one that unfolds the path of his life. And I think this is something that helps us understand that in the light of the sovereign plan of God, we still need to ask God for wisdom. We still need to ask God for direction. We still need to ask God for help in the daily events of our lives, and particularly as moms. uh, It's an incredible responsibility And it's it's a wonderful thing to trust a sovereign God who knows the end of the beginning, who knows everything about your children, who knows their past, who knows their present, who knows their future, who knows their skills, who knows their gifts. It's a wonderful thing to be able to go to God and say, God, I know you, know my child. Would you help me now? As moment by moment I pour into their lives the things that will turn them into a child that will put their trust in you. And so Joseph Uh, fascinating to me that he trusted that God would help him he asked God I'm sure for wisdom in this kind of circumstance this situation he asked God to give him insight into whatever it would be that Pharaoh would ask him to do he he already had cultivated a knowledge of God or a trust in God and as the writer of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom Uh, doesn't that make sense loved ones if, and the fear of the Lord means the, the respect of God, the awe of God, the, 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 the submission to God. Doesn't it make sense that if God is the God who has made this universe and everything in it, if he has made every animal, if he has made every star, if he has made every tree, if he has made every plant, if he has determined the laws that will guide and direct this world, the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics, all of these kinds of laws, if God is the God of biology, if God is the God of philosophy, if God is the God of carpentry, if God is the God of, of plumbing, if God is the God that knows all of this and makes all of this work, does it, does it not make sense? That we would go to him for wisdom? It makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me is why I don't go to him as often as I should. But Joseph had been cultivating this knowledge of God, this relationship with God. He was convinced in the power of God, the might of God. And so he, was, he, was, he, he lived in the fear of God. But I think he sought wisdom as well. I think the life of Joseph was marked by a young man who realized his inadequacies. You can be given all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't know how to apply that knowledge, you have no wisdom at all. We live in a world that is full of access to knowledge. You can go and you can find out information about everything until your mind is just exploding with knowledge. But that knowledge will do you not a bit of good if you don't have the wisdom to apply it to life in the situations that you face. And so not only did Joseph live in... Uh, uh, and cultivate a fear of the Lord I'm sure he sought knowledge on a daily basis as he was managing Potiphar's household, as he was before that managing his father's sheep, as he was in the prison. God, would you help me with this? God, I don't know what to do here. God, look at the books of Potiphar. They just don't make sense. Would you help me understand that? God, I don't know anything about harvesting and planting. Would you help me understand that so I can direct the servants of Potiphar? God, look at these guys in prison. These are hardened criminals, and you have put me in charge of them. I don't know how to calm them down. I don't know how to guide them and direct them. Would you give me wisdom? And so he sought wisdom from God. And which just bleeds into the third, which is out of that is simply the Bible. And James tells us that whoever lacks wisdom, what? Ask God who gives wisdom. This is an amazing thing. In the light of a sovereign God, does it not make sense that in my day-to-day living, in the responsibilities that I have, responsibilities that I will be held accountable for, does it not make sense that I would go before God and say, God, help me? You know it all. And so Joseph was one. I think he was regularly in the presence of God. And he understood, as you and I need to grow in our understanding, that the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, does not negate the importance of careful planning and of preparation for the tasks that God calls us to. God had spoken. He had given the interpretation of the dream. And now God had given a plan of how they were to prepare and get ready for the fixed and certain word that was about to happen in 14 years. So as we live under the sovereign hand of God we come to him on a regular basis saying God would you give me wisdom for what you have called me to do. Another thing that I see in response to the sovereignty of God as it's now worked out is the incredible mercy of God in particular to Pharaoh. It strikes me in this text that that Pharaoh's not paralyzed by the word of God. He listens to Joseph's interpretation of his dream. He listens to the plan that Joseph presents to him that he needs to implement, and he makes a decision. It's amazing to me that, that Joseph did that, or that Pharaoh did that. I was thinking in my head, Joseph, Pharaoh must have been sitting there, he must have been a little bit conflicted. All of a sudden, who is this Joseph guy anyhow? I didn't even know this guy existed till about 20 minutes ago. He must have been kind of going through his head. And then somebody might have told him he's a Hebrew slave. And this is a Hebrew slave. What is a Hebrew slave doing in my presence all of a sudden here? And what about the God of this young man? He says Egypt has hundreds of gods. And now he's got this God, and this God is able to interpret my dream. And now I'm supposed to believe that that same God that enabled him to interpret my dream has a plan for me for the next 14 years. And he bases his confidence in Joseph on a couple of things. One, on the word of a cupbearer. His cupbearer, who had had a dream, and the dream had come true, and Joseph, or Pharaoh had these dreams, and he's confused, and the cupbearer says, Listen, I had a dream. And I went to this guy, and he told me my dream, and he told me that it would be fulfilled in this certain way. You need to go and find this particular dream. And so Pharaoh could have ignored the cupbearer and says, Really, you want me to listen to some slave that's in prison? But no, he goes and he gets uh, 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 Joseph, and he brings him into his presence. And then we read that the advice of Joseph pleased Pharaoh and all of his courtiers. That's amazing. That's the mercy of God that in the, in the sovereign will of God, in the sovereign plan of God, he's even working in a pagan king to make his advice pleasing to him. And secondly, Pharaoh realized something unique about this young man, Joseph. I don't know if he actually understood what it meant when he said the spirit of God rests on him. I don't think he had the full understanding that you and I have today as we reflect on that phrase, but he understood that there was something unique about this man. There was a power, there was an influence, there was a wisdom that he had, and he attributed that to the God that he served. And then he he says, can we find anybody like this man? A man who has the spirit of God in him, since God has made all of this known to you, there is nobody as intelligent as you. He recognized wisdom when he heard it. And so Pharaoh says, here's what I'm going to do. This is amazing to me. In light of the, 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 the sovereign word of God, Pharaoh almost has more faith in the sovereign word of God than a lot of us do. He says, this guy has told me that in 14 years, there's going to be a huge famine, or in seven years, there's going to be a huge famine. And so in light of the word of God, he says, here's what I'm going to do. Again, his confidence in the sovereignty of God does not negate the necessity of him planning and getting ready for what God is going to do any more than our confidence And the return of Christ means that we just sit back and sit at home on our lawn chairs all day saying, well, it could be today. No, we are told, are we not, to to work and to serve and to tell and to watch and to wait, even though it is sure and certain that Jesus Christ is coming back. And so Pharaoh says, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to give you authority beyond any authority you've ever known, Joseph, and at your command, everybody in my kingdom will do what you tell them to do. That is incredible authority. He adds that up, follows that up with the clout of his signet ring. One of a kind, he takes it off of his finger and he gives it to Joseph. That signet ring could seal any order that he would ever make, and that made it almost like the word of a god. He says, I'm going to give you such authority that at your command every knee will bow. I'm going to give you the clout of my signet ring. Not only am I going to give you clout, but I'm going to give you clothing like nobody has ever seen before. I'm going to dress you in the finest robes. I'm going to put some bling around your neck. And when you go out there, people are going to recognize your authority and your power and your might. And not only that, he says, I'm going to give you a set of wheels. I'm going to give you a chariot. And this isn't just a normal chariot that all my regular sort of army officers ride in or a normal chariot that somebody will get from one end of my kingdom to another. This is like the, the second best chariot in all of the land. And not only am I going to give you a chariot, but I'm going to send a whole bunch of servants ahead of you. And as they're running ahead of you, they're going to yell out a break. And that doesn't mean I have no brakes. That means... <laughs> I like that. I thought that was funny too. Uh, uh, It it means that you're to bow down. You're to be in awe of him. You're going to respect him. Can you imagine that so confident was Pharaoh in the word of the Lord spoken through Joseph, the sovereign word of God, that he believed it. And in believing it, he accepted the plan of Joseph and authorized him to carry it out. Again, I was thinking of this in relation to mothers. Do you have such confidence in the word of God that as you're raising your sons and your daughters, if the word of God says something, you believe it, you trust it, and you act upon it? It's amazing to me that Pharaoh doesn't even stop there. All of a sudden, he gives him a new name. He gives him a new wife. And both of those would be further acts that would elevate um, Joseph in the eyes of Egyptian culture. They would have been things that would have granted him favor. They would have been things that placed him in the highest social standing in the land. And yet, as we'll see in a couple minutes, that doesn't go to his head because when it comes to naming his children, he still gives them Hebrew names. But I was thinking this. All of this happened because Pharaoh believed the word of God. That's amazing to me. It wasn't much that he had to go on. He he listened to the word of the cupbearer. He trusted his testimony about this young man. And then he trusted the interpretation of Joseph and the plan that Joseph had. That was all that he had to go on, and yet he entrusted his whole kingdom to the sovereign plan of God. I'm amazed in the world in which we live, how so much information people have of God and yet they still refuse to put their trust in him. Some have been raised in churches all of their life. Some have been around a Christian home all of their life. Some know everything there is to know about God, so to speak. They just have minds full of knowledge and information about God and yet they will not trust him. If that is any of you here today, I pray that God would open your ears to hear him. I pray that God would open your eyes to see him. I pray that God would be merciful to you and you would recognize that even though God is this sovereign, powerful, almighty God, that he calls you into submission and service to him. And what a wonderful submission and what a wonderful service it is. And what a wonderful way it is to live in light of the confidence of a good and holy, righteous God, guiding and directing your life according to his purposes for you. Thirdly, there's the trustworthiness of God. These are just sort of random thoughts. There's there's at least six or eight sermons in this text. These are just my own random thoughts, so as I continue to wrestle back with, with how I live my life in light of the sovereignty of God. I live a life of wisdom, seeking wisdom from him. I live a life of response to his plan and his merciful Declaration to me of what he's going to do so I can plan and prepare for it. But then there's this affirmation of the trustworthiness of God. Just let your eyes settle for a moment on verse 36 where it says Joseph was 30 years old. It's just a time marker that uh, Moses has given us to remind us that when Joseph was 17 years old, he was sold by his brothers to slave traders who brought him down to Egypt. For 13 years, He had been guided. He had been protected. He had been cared for by God. Those 13 years were full of amazing ups and downs. And now we are when he's 30 years old. So that's 13 years from the moment he was sold to what it says here, when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That phrase alone is a fascinating phrase to me. You know, I I have a lot of regrets in life. Not that I beat myself up over them. I do that once in a while. Um, I think Pastor Barry once called me a tortured soul uh, um, but uh, before I was a Christian I was probably one of the worst employees that you could have I was arrogant I was proud I thought I knew everything and I treated my bosses like they were dirt in fact I did follow some of them up after I became a Christian and I tried to find them and I phoned them and I apologized to them for the way that I had treated them but after I became a Christian, it was a hard thing for me to begin to adjust to submission to authority. And this phrase, it just, it, it just reminded me and encouraged me, and, and um, I think God said, you know, just mention a little bit of this to the church on Sunday. When he entered the service of Pharaoh the king, you know, most of us here will not have the privilege of working for a Christian boss. We won't have a privilege of working for one who shares the same values we have, shares the same perspectives we have, shares the same goals we have, worships the same God that we have. But does that mean that if you don't have a Christian boss, you can slack off? No. Does that mean that if you don't have a Christian boss, that you can cut corners on the work that you do? No. You see, it is so true, and I appreciate those reasons. It doesn't. We as Christians should be some of the best workers. In fact, we should be the best workers that anybody can have because ultimately that boss is the authority that God has placed over us and there is no authority that is given that is not given by God and when we disobey that authority, we disobey God. It was just such a small little reminder to me here to just encourage many of you here who are in the work world or will be entering into the work world. That no matter whose service you enter into, pagan king, wild rebel against God, serve them with all of your heart. Serve them as though you are serving the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So Joseph gets to work. He has this plan and how he begins to implement this plan throughout the land of Egypt. It, it basically tells us that he hopped in his chariot and off he went from one end of the land to the other end of the land. It's, an, it's just a reminder of the hard work that he did in, in verse 45. So Joseph went out over all of the land and he had this brilliant plan that God had had given to him, that he would take one-fifth of the harvest from all the good years and he would begin to store it up. I can imagine probably after three or four years that maybe some of the people would have started saying, okay, this is enough. Would you stop taking a fifth of my stuff and storing it up? I don't know if the land knew of what God was going to do. They had to trust Joseph. I think we've just come through tax season and there's probably more than a few of you that are ticked that maybe the government has taken a little bit more than you think they should have taken, particularly after you've worked for 30 years and you think enough is enough. But he takes a fifth of all the produce for the next seven years and he stores it in towns all about Egypt. Brilliant plan. So that people didn't have to get in their chariot and go for days to a storehouse. They could just walk to the Storehouse and get what they needed for the next years of famine. There's no sitting back and waiting to see whether or not the word of God would come true. There was no sitting back and saying, well, God said it's going to happen, so it'll happen regardless of what I do. He gets to work because of the promise of God's word. That's amazing to me. The sovereignty of God is, is not something that restricts him or constrains him. The sovereignty of God is what motivates him. See, we can confidently serve God today because he is sovereign. What gives meaning to our prayer? What gives hope to our prayer? What gives, what gives help when we cry out to God for deliverance? Is because we think, well, God, you know what? I, I sort of think you can do this. And, you know, you're the best option of them all. Or, you know, I'm I've, I've trying this and I'm trying that. And you're just my third go-to person. No, we pray to God because he believes he has the power. We pray to God because he can change things. We pray to God because he has a plan. We pray to God because he controls all things. We evangelize because God is the God who saves. I don't know who God will save. It's not up to me to determine that. I know he will save. And I know he calls me to witness. And I know he calls me to tell people about Jesus. Who gets saved is up to God. But I know that he will save. And therefore, I have confidence to go forth with his word. All of this leads me to the point, and the point is the trustworthiness of God, but notice verse 47. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. That simply tells us God was true to his word. You can trust God. If God says there's going to be seven years of plenty, there's going to be seven years of plenty. God doesn't say, oh, I changed my mind, it's going to be five, or, oh, I, you know, the winds are a little bit crazy, so it's, you know, it's going to be two. Now, if God says it's going to be seven years, you can count on it being seven years. You can trust the word of God, loved ones. Then, notice verse 53. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. The trustworthiness of God. God had declared it, it was fixed. And now he was true to his word. Not only did he say it, but he has the power to bring it about. Seven years of plenty and now seven years of famine. Are you confident that the word of God is true? Do you trust the word of God no matter how long it seems that the promise is taking to be fulfilled? I think of this again even as moms. You know, there's so many promises that we need and that you hang on to as you raising those young lives to be men and women of God. Sometimes you don't see the fulfillment of the promise of God, even while they're yet in your home. Don't give up on the trustworthiness of God. Because he is sovereign, his word will never, ever fail. The final observation as we live our life not only um, Asking for wisdom, we live our life not only depending on mercy, we live our lives not only confident in the trustworthiness of God, but in the midst of all of this, we are cognizant of the goodness of God. Verses 50 to 52, I'll read them again. It said, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget. Forget what? Forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful. Where? In the land of my affliction. Many times we give names to things without really thinking of them. We name our children and Sometimes we just pick a name because it's a popular name. Sometimes we pick a name because it's easy to pronounce. Every once in a while, though, parents um, think about the names that they're naming their kids. They, they, maybe there's a circumstance in their life or uh, a history in their life, and they name their child with a name that has peculiar meaning to them. Our oldest son and daughter-in-law have three girls, and their youngest girl is named Sarita. It's a beautiful name. I found, and they wanted all their kids to have uh, biblical names that so was part of it. But Sarita is Spanish for Sarah. It's a beautiful name. But I also found out that the Sarita River is one of the best fly fishing rivers on the island. <laughs> and my son loves fly fishing. And so every time he says Sarita so sweeta, He thinks of fly fishing on the Sarita River. (laughs) And so names have meaning, don't they? Names help us recall certain things. And so Manasseh, God has caused me to forget. Forget what? Forget all my hardship and all my father's house. This is something really beautiful going on here. He says, the provision of God, as I reflect now, somewhere in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth year of God's plenty, God has allowed me, enabled me to put the pain of my previous years behind me. God has removed the sting from the hardship and from the bitterness that I've had. It's a little like Joel 2.25, where God promised us to restore what the locusts have eaten. You see, the goodness of God had captured Joseph, and he had captured in the name Manasseh. It's, it's the dominant theme of his life, God has made me forget. I doubt that this means that he had no memory of those years. I doubt that it means that he forgot his brothers. In fact, we know he didn't forget his brothers or his father. But I, I think that what it is saying is that the, the, the memory of the hardship and the pain and the bitterness no longer dominates his thinking. That he is now aware of the blessing of God, of the providence of God, of the goodness of God in his life. The sadness and the fear and the pain and the badness and the blackness of those days and those years have begun to recede in his mind. It's Chuck Swindoll in his little book on Joseph and he he says this. He says, maybe it's time to give birth to Manasseh to ask God to erase the stings in your memory. Learning how to forget is a grace of God. I know that I have hurt people terribly over my life, and I hope that God has allowed many of them to begin to forget the pain of things that I have said. But also, people have said some pretty cruel things to me over my life. And I don't know why this came up in a conversation with my wife and I. But she said to me, do you remember what they used to call you when you left so-and-so? And, And, you know, I had forgotten it. Um, And it was just, it was a cruel thing to say. But God in his goodness, over 13, 14 years, has allowed me to forget the pain of some of those things that have been said to me. Some of us live, don't we, with incredible hurt and anger and pain. May God maybe help us to have the perspective of Joseph. And it may take years to get there. And I think even of bums, you know, children sometimes can do and say some of the most hurtful things. But maybe over time, do you able to look back and say Manasseh over that. That God has allowed me to forget hardship and then ephraim god has caused me to be fruitful in my affliction it's important to just settle in on the context of this this is not the reflection of him at the end of his life he died at 139 years rather this is his moment is in the moment reflection in the present somewhere in the years of abundance We're not yet at chapter 50, but Joseph is even able to say now that even while there's still a great deal to be worked out, even though there's still a lot of things that he's got to face along the way ahead of him, he's able to say, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's not God has made me fruitful in the land of my birth. Right now, right here, there's a song like that, isn't there? Anyway, I'm not going to start singing. You know it. Yeah. But right now, right here, in a land of my affliction, God has made me fruitful. Again, I say that to moms. Many of our, Many of your experiences have been good and positive. But some of you maybe carry some pain. It's a beautiful thing about the sovereignty of God that he can make you fruitful even in the pain of your affliction and some of the things that you might have suffered. Oh, the goodness of God. As we come to an end, it's one final phrase that I just want us to think about, that I want to resonate in our hearts and minds, because we realize that we don't just live on a physical plane, we live on a spiritual plane. On the physical plane, in this historical time and reality, All of a sudden, the famine comes. And in the midst of the famine, the people are now in trouble, and they recognize they're in trouble, and they go to Pharaoh, and they cry out to Pharaoh, Help us! And what does Pharaoh say to them? He says, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you to do. Doesn't that send your mind thinking a little bit about Jesus? In the spiritual famine of your life, in those waste places when years of abundance seem to have passed and maybe now you're struggling, maybe now you're aware of the, the hole that's in your heart, as Augustine used to say the, or said, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, O God. Scripture points us to Jesus Christ. Go to Jesus and do what he tells you to do. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger. On the great day of a feast, he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Go then, go then to Jesus and do what he tells you to do. see, we do ourselves a disfavor if we look at the story of Joseph and think of it just as a really great story of a really smart guy who had a really smart plan to... Help a bunch of egyptians out thousands of years ago it is true he was smart and he did have a plan and he did help out a whole bunch of egyptian thousands of years ago but as i say it points us it foreshadows the one who will deal not with the physical famine of our lives but the spiritual famine of our lives when nothing else will do when nothing else will satisfy Go to Jesus and do what he tells you to do. It's Amos who said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Spiritually, God has told you what he's going to do. There is coming a day, he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. He tells us how we can prepare for that day by going to Jesus. Will you not turn to Jesus today for help? Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it has helped me again To wrestle with something I've wrestled with all of my life. The wonderful, daunting reality of your sovereign power and might and control over all this world. And my own freedom of choice and responsibility to act. i thank you for helping me think about it in a different way this past week. I pray it will have been a help for your people. And I pray, Father, if anyone is experiencing a famine of their soul today, that they would turn to Jesus for help. I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.